Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hey, folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And uh, today we're continuing with a uh, topic that we were talking about previously with our special guest, uh, Judge Robert McBurney from the Atlanta Judicial Circuit. Um, and Judge McBurney today is talking about a topic that a lot of judges have asked us to uh, to do a podcast on. Should we call this the sequel? It is. Part deux. Part deux. Part deux. Exactly. <laughs> Part duh. Um, anyway, <laughs> 404B. 404B, we're now going to move away from some of the, the basic uh, preliminary things, and let's talk about that list. You know, Tane, that non-exclusive list that's in 404B? I do. Well, let's talk that limited, but not included, uh, <laughs> including, but not limited to. Wow. I can't even say it. Or limited, but not including to. Yeah. Um. So let's talk, let's go down kind of in order. We've talked a little bit about these things, but let's talk about them. Let's, let's, let's dig a little bit. Let's talk about motive. Judge McBurney, talk a little bit about sort of motive. There's a lot of things that can provide motive. Usually you don't have to prove motive, but, but everybody wants to know the motive, right? Sure. So prosecution never has the burden to prove motive, um, but it helps if they can. I'll tell you, motive to me is the the slipperiest slope of these that gets us back into the bad old days of like bent of mind. Intent was real briefly after Bradshaw, but um, motive, why someone did something. Um, I have seen prosecutors try to drive buses through real small holes on that because the argument would be, well, um, he robbed this guy because he was motivated to take his money. And that's the same motive he had the last time he robbed someone. <laughs> like, okay, that's true. Um, but that that's basically saying he likes to break the law by pointing a gun at someone and taking their money. But, but the prosecutor means it very earnestly. But it's the motive, this reason why he committed the crime. And it needs to be more profound than that. We were talking in our last session um, that if you, you take a real right angle approach, um, not the same type of crime, but motive drug deal went bad is the motive for the shooting. That old drug deal, it could be six months ago and and memories die hard here, is the reason why this guy, the defendant, pulled out a gun and shot the victim, his former source of supply who flexed him. That's motive, that's why it would come in. Um, But it is an elastic concept and and you will find that there are prosecutors who take a a, a real basic view of motive, money, improving his stature in the gang. And um, because that may have motivated crime A, that crime ought to come in in this trial about crime B. And and that's the way the cases have dissected it more is the way people react to a situation. If you insult my gang, three years ago, you insulted my gang, not you, but someone did, and I pulled out a gun on the guy. And then this case that's before the jury The state's argument is when you insulted the gang, um, this guy once again pulled out a gun. And jurors might think, that's crazy. Who would do that? Well, this guy would. That's his motive. That's why he did it. 
One of the things that's really important when we're looking at 404B evidence too, is we really have to be careful not getting ourselves in a situation where we're trying other cases within the case that we're that we're trying that that the jury's not going to be totally confused as to uh, okay well what's this guy charged with and what are we really trying and and i think that's something that we as judges have to be really careful about is to make sure that that doesn't happen professor millage professor millage used to call that letting the shot the sideshow take over the circus to where now you are having a (laughs) he's been in he's been in your courtroom (laughs) <laughs> so now we're having a fist fight over what happened four years ago when we're trying to have try what happened last year that's in the indictment. And so, yeah, that's a great point. Well, it's, it's, it's one of the factors that courts have considered for undue prejudice. If it's going to take such an effort to produce the evidence of the old case, um, sometimes you can be acquitted of old charges and that's still something that could be used as 404B, because it's a preponderance. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. And so I've had a scenario where the defense attorney said, judge, we will retry that case in your courtroom if the state's gonna try to get it in. Um, Because my client was acquitted, I'm gonna call the same witnesses, they're gonna need to call the same witnesses, and I'm gonna argue it like it is a second trial. Well, (laughs) then we we can't do that, because then what's the, the jury is so confused about what's going on, what's the trial about? I'm going to give one more quick trial tip to our judges who are listening. Everybody else cover your ears, but to your judges who are listening, your rulings on 404, I'm sorry, on 403 are a lot less likely to be overturned (laughs) because of the standard that's included in 403 for your consideration than perhaps your rulings on 404. And so I always make sure to do a subsequent 403 analysis, even if I've already ruled against somebody on 404B. and, and you'll be shocked about this, but generally my analysis on 403 comes out exactly the same as my analysis on 404B. I, I mean, am I wrong about that, guys? Yeah, I, no, I no, but 403 is step two of the process, but it, it's sort of inclusive. But I get your larger point. You're saying that it really didn't didn't touch that first threshold, but it definitely didn't touch the second threshold. Yeah, or or I'm seeing this as being something that is, you know, the prejudicial value completely outweighs its probative value. Well, that's a judgment call for you, and and you know you're allowed to make that call. I, I can't think of a single case where uh, an appellate court has reversed the trial judge for excluding 404B on a 403 basis, to Tame's point. I agree with you. I agree. But remember, 404B, rule of inclusion. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. So we've done motive. Let's talk about opportunity. Now, opportunity, to me, this is one that ought to be self-evident. And and I think that, that people, if people don't understand why this is so important, go look at the 4,561 cases where 404B is where, where the notes of decisions under 404B exist. This is important because both sides know just how important or impactful this can be to a jury to know that this person previously committed another crime and is not in fact a choir boy as being portrayed or girl, but opportunity opportunity is that the defendant had the opportunity, like specific ability or wherewithal to commit the crime. Not that they 
usually commit these kind of crimes. So he had the opportunity. No, that's not the point. It's like, where were you? Were you in the neighborhood when this crime went down? That's what opportunity really goes to, right? That or, or as you mentioned, the the skill set. I, I think of this as um, being, and it's it overlaps a little bit um, with with knowledge, but like safe cracking. Yeah, I know how to I know how to crack a safe, so I have the opportunity to open it. Someone else got me in the bank, but I know how to listen to the dial, click click click, and all that. Um, it's infrequently used, as you mentioned. It's don't come up a lot. Um, but it, it is something unique about this person or his or her situation at the time of the crime that the jury ought to be able to hear about, would be the argument from the state, um, that would explain how things could have happened. Because the defendant is probably saying either there's no way I could have done that or no one could have done that. Well, actually, you could because let me bring in this evidence of something you did in the past. So, Tane, you remember you and I used to talk about this all the time when Bradshaw came out and Olds followed it. The next number on our list, the next item on our list of, of the non-exclusive list for reasons that 404B evidence can be introduced is intent. As Judgment Bernie pointed out a while ago, Bradshaw came out and it said, hey, when you plead not guilty, you are putting intent at issue. And they cited some cases from the 11th Circuit. Therefore, unless you do things that tend to that somehow make your intent irrelevant, you take some affirmative step. Intent is an element that the state must prove beyond reasonable doubt. Therefore, well, all of a sudden, warning bells went off, lights started flashing, dogs slept with cats. It was crazy because people lost their minds because they said, wait a minute, that that exception just swallowed the rule. In other words, if, 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 if intent is always an issue, then you, that means you're letting in every 404B ever, ever, ever. And they, they tried to correct our ability to read in olds. I mean, our ability to understand in olds when they said, well, our prior decision may have mis, mis, been misapprehended, I think was the word. I don't remember exactly how it was phrased. But they said, not always, not forever, just usually. And then after Olds, they have now, the appellate courts have stuffed the genie back into the bottle a great deal and said, everybody calm down who thought this was the end of the world. Intent is an issue. Calm down, Wade and Tane. That's right. Everybody <laughs> calm down. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. Right. Get off the ledge, Wade and Tane. So... Where a defendant says, I am not guilty because I never intended to participate in any shooting and I was coerced to do so. Well, now his intent is is relevant. It is at issue. And the state's going to have to prove malicious intent when they have that murder trial on a drive-by shooting, and he says, I was coerced. And we go, well, what about this other time? Were you coerced then too? Which is, that is that is what the intent argument is for. That's why it's relevant. Not every time you plead not guilty, we're going to be able to, to, to basically throw in the kitchen sink of everything you've ever did. I, Let's I think talk a little bit about intent. I think that's right. Um, the line of federal 11th Circuit cases that Bradshaw borrowed from dealt with drug conspiracies and it is very clearly the law on the 11th circuit that if a defendant enters a plea of not guilty in a drug conspiracy 
any drug cases coming in because it's intent. Um, you, as the prosecutor, as the government, would have to prove that this individual intended to be involved in this plan, this scheme, this conspiracy to distribute or traffic drugs. Um, and the defendant, by saying not guilty, has put that burden on, on the state. Um, and so that language made sense in the narrower context of a drug trafficking conspiracy. It makes a whole lot less sense when you push it more broadly to any other case where a defendant says, not, if it's a murder case, I, I did not intend to kill him. My, my defense is self-defense. If that's your defense, the fact that you shot someone before may have nothing to do with the case or the fact that you were involved with drugs before. Um, so there are ways to, to close the door a little bit, but um, that's sort of where the, the problem arose. I think the focus now is much more on that state of mind necessary for the crime. So your example of, no, no, I was coerced into doing it. It wasn't voluntary. Well, if you have a prior instance of we'll call it the voluntary use of force, that ought to come in because it rebuts the defense claim that I only did it under duress um, or it rebuts accident or again in self-defense. I was only reacting to this threat. No, we can show you're hot-headed and the moment someone um, says something about your gang that you don't like, you're reaching in your waistband and, and pulling the gun. Tane, you want to talk a little bit about preparation? Uh, this this is going to be a short conversation because preparation yeah. is Perfect almost com- yeah. well, <laughs> that well, it's is almost true. completely wrapped up in in well, traffic, short, right? I have a short attention span, so um, <laughs> but I, I did want to hear since there is a dearth of case law regarding what preparation means under four hundred four B. I wanted to hear what former federal prosecutor and uh, Harvard graduate and and uh, Fulton County uh, Atlanta Circuit Judge Robert McBurney thinks about what preparation means because there's not there's just not a whole lot out there that gives us direction on that. It was a fail safe for an unsuccessful intrinsic act argument. So we would in federal practice um, wanting to provide notice, not wanting to be decapitated by a judge who was surprised by us bringing an intrinsic act in the middle of trial. Um, we'd file a motion in limine saying, we think these things should come in as intrinsic acts to the conspiracy to do X or Y or Z. It's the plan. It's when they bought the truck they were going to use to ship the cabbages. But of course, it was um, drugs, not cabbages, but it's a big 18-wheeler. And usually it would come in as intrinsic evidence. If it wouldn't, if the judge had a wild hair about, well, that's really not part of the story, so it's extrinsic. Okay, it's preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, but nine times out of 10, it's intrinsic, which is why you, you don't get many cases that talk about preparation. But it's if it's just far enough removed temporally or causally from the main set of crimes that a judge is going to say that's not part of the story, it's not mm-hmm. intrinsic, then you can argue, well, it was how they were preparing to do what you're calling is the crime in chief. Yeah, And, you know, this that Sloan case where they taught and, and I think this is sort of a combination of Milich's comments in the Sloan case but basically if a bank robbery is is charged and it says that the evidence is admitted to show preparation and it would include theft of weapons used in that subsequent robbery and a visit to the bank the day before the robbery that's probably intrinsic. We're probably not even talking about 404B. Right. But just in case, to follow Judge McBurney's example, just in case 
Those are the kind of things we're talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. Kind of the same thing with plan, don't y'all think? I mean, it. it <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because when you talk about intrinsic evidence in the way that we've we've described it before, plan certainly gets subsumed into into intrinsic evidence there, but um, but it's a separate reason. And so, as as you were talking about a minute ago. Uh, a prosecutor may say to you, well, judge, I mean, if nothing else, uh, if you don't believe it's intrinsic, it clearly goes to plan. You know, these people all got together five days before and talked about who was going to be where, when, and what they were going to do when they all got there. Right. And one of the things they had to do was get a stolen gun and they had to get a stolen car and remove the tags. And a judge could say, but that's not the armed robbery. Okay. It's not, it's part of the plan and the preparation. Um, but they are very closely linked. And those are a few of the ones you will sometimes see these notices um, from the state saying, we want to get in this 404B. And they literally write the whole list of items. <laughs> they say, oh, that's frustrating. Preparation. Like, come on, you know, it's not, there's nothing that would qualify under all those headings. But there are a few where it would make sense to rattle off some of them, the preparation and plan. Um, those usually go hand in hand. Well, and let me say uh, the one thing that I do think is important for, again, our judge uh, and if uh, any prosecutors who might be out there or anybody else who might be in this, I think when you're making a ruling as a judge, it's real important for you to say, I do think this goes to plan or I do think this goes to motive or whichever element because you can't just say I think this is admissible under 404b because as you said a moment ago some of those things don't apply they clearly don't apply and if you're not specific about that neither is the prosecutor who's offering the evidence um, you could get reversed for that reason oh and the courts have been critical when the judge isn't clear on the basis or sometimes the judge um, just adopts the same list (laughs) that the prosecutor provided is back in the old course of conduct bent of mind yep. and everyone would just say, Oh, it comes in under all those things. You want to be very specific. The prosecutor may advance three. You may agree with one of the three. I am admitting this pursuant to 404 B having engaged in the three steps of the test because it does tend to prove motive. Be specific. And don't just say, I agree with the state. Yes. You see the appellate opinions where the court of appeals says, it was not properly admitted under this basis, even though the judge rattled off all the items and it was not. And they get frustrated because they have to dissect it when probably the judge meant, right, the only way it's coming in is identity. But I just said it's coming in for the state's notice. And never, never, never say it comes in because it's part of the race just die. <laughs> you know, um, you know how you go to dinner with your significant other and, and you try to figure out where you're headed? And yeah, I don't know. What do you want? I don't know. What do you want? People are so afraid to commit, right? The same thing is true here. A lot of our colleagues are afraid to commit because if they're wrong, oh, what, what, what might be? That's the whole point of the exercise, folks. The whole point is if you can't say with some degree of clarity, it goes to motive, it goes to intent, it goes to preparation or plan, it goes to absence of mistake, then you need to rethink it because we all know how how devastatingly important this evidence can be, and it's not supposed to come in unless it's supposed to come in. And if so you're anyway. a little if you're a little squishy on it, then at the th- conclusion of that, you say, 
And also, the prejudicial value greatly outweighs <laughs> the, the probative value, and therefore, it doesn't come in either. So. so let's keep going down our list. Let's talk about knowledge. We touched on this a minute ago. You talked about the safe cracking example. This is a misused um, justification for 404B on a frequent basis because it is the... The argument some some prosecutors will make was say, Judge, he previously sold cocaine, and so he has the knowledge of how you do that. Well, that's not something that requires specialized knowledge. He previously kicked in a door, and this time he raised the window. You see, he knows how to break in houses. That's not specialized knowledge. All armed robberies use weapons. That's not specialized knowledge. What's 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 designed? What the design here is that if you have unique knowledge, for example, I, I think there might have been. You know, did you ever get involved in like securities cases as a prosecutor at all? Um, un- unfortunately, a few times I did have to get involved with the real hairy <laughs> white collar stuff. It's more mortgage fraud. I, but see, I would say that that might go to knowledge mm-hmm. if you have some of that, because that goes to how financing is done, and that's unique knowledge that the average person might not have safe cracking how to how to refinance houses how to how to sell mortgage on the secondary market you know stuff like that I, I, okay i get that the walter white uh, he knows how to make really good meth see th- then that's <laughs> and that's uh, you know the fact that he made meth before should it be admitted in this meth manufacturing case probably not unless it's some unique formula the the one counterpoint I'd raise to that to agree with with Wade everything you just said except where I think knowledge does come into play uh, is when you've got the classic the police have a search warrant they hit the drug house and they arrest three people you've got the guy whose name is on the lease right, he's gone that's that's not uh, one that's tricky for the state to prove but you've got the guy who said I, I was just there to play cards I didn't know this was a drug house. I didn't know they were selling drugs here. If that individual has prior drug sales arrests, and again, this is where the indictment alone wouldn't be enough, but if the evidence behind it, the officer could say, we made control buys from this guy at a drug house. Um, I think that would be the way you'd get that in. It could arguably be intent, but if he's charged with just being part of the program, then I think knowledge would be appropriate. Yes. So it's not hugely specialized knowledge, um, but it is still, it's as knowledge the that a crime was being committed. Amen. All right. Identity. This is incredibly misused. People will argue, and I want you to hear this in the bright light of the podcast and not in the bright light of the courtroom. Judge, he previously committed a burglary. So this proves he he committed this burglary. Hello? That is propensity, <laughs> propensity, propensity. Identity is supposed to be modus operandi. It's supposed to be signature killer stuff. I mean, excuse me, serial killer stuff to where you have a signature on this crime. Your method and madness is evident in that case and this one. And if that's not true, identity is that that's not what this was designed for. This is for modus operandi or signature crimes. And let's also remember identity has to be an issue. I mean, again, don't don't let those things get all muddled up in your head. I mean, if he says I wasn't there, (laughs) you know, then identity is suddenly I. 
identity that need component dives under right. your four prosecutorial need vaporizes and, right. and and then they're, they're just getting it in to show he did something bad before exactly and then the last one on the on the pre-made list is absence of mistake or accident i think we've talked about this one enough sort of in our prior conversation but if anybody missed it accident or mistake needs to be an issue before we can even have a conversation that this takes away evidence of accident or mistake. But if there is actually a claim of accident or mistake, and I have had one of these in a child molestation case that I was washing the child and I accidentally uh, put my finger somewhere it should not have been, well, then a, I could see a prior child molestation coming in. On the other hand, that that I would say this is somewhat rare, too, where somebody actually brings up accident or mistake as a defense. So. It was the basis for the state to try to get in a prior gun usage by one Tex MacGyver in the MacGyver trial, um, because, of course, the defense was the gun in my lap accidentally went off perforating my wife's chest. Um, but it was too temporarily remote, the other gun usage. And so um, that the was learned, the right. The learned judge ruled. It was the right purpose, but it was um, not sufficiently probative of what was going on um, 20 something years later. So let's talk for a minute about when we when we talk about 404B, you think we talk about 404B, we're done. Good Lord, y'all talked about this for two sessions now. Let's move along. There are three other statutes that I just want to make sure everybody is aware of. 24 413 414 and then 418. 413 and 414, and, and Judge McBurney talked about this early in the last episode. Those are sex crimes where propensity where sex crimes cases on trial where propensity use is absolutely admissible. And you've just got to kind of retrain your brain and understand that if there is a prior conviction for a sex offense, if this is a sex offense or a child molestation offense, depending on the statute, they're coming in. You can still use 403 to exclude them if you think that they are too temporally remote, et cetera, but it would be, these are these are intentionally separate statutes from 404. It's a policy decision that the legislature made, Congress made it, and, and Georgia's legislature adopted it, that um, if someone molested a kid before, it could be 100 years ago, um, it's coming in and the state can use it to beat the defendant about the head saying once a child molester, always a child molester. 403 still applies. Um, so I could see a judge saying it's not coming in because it's 100 years old, but you don't need to provide a basis. In fact, you can be very open as saying my basis is to argue propensity. That's why I want to get it in. The jury will understand he's a molester because the defense is often I would never touch my child that way, except your other daughter. Yeah, or your 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 stepkids or whatever the the yep. situation was. Now, 418 is there are, there are a couple of groups of defendants who do not have a very effective lobby with our legislature. Uh <laughs> people who commit sex offenses and child molestation and people who are members of gangs. I have seen that sort of firsthand. The the gang the gang cases don't merge and all and and prior gang activity comes in to prove current gang activity. It's very much a propensity use prior offense equals admission. The only limitation would be 403. And unless y'all know a lot more older gang members than I do, it probably is not going to be so temporally remote to be, to be excluded. 
There's some of those motorcycle gangs with some pretty long gray ponytails up in North Georgia. <laughs> we really don't want to be as in a gang of sexual predators because then anything and everything is coming in about your they life. Can even, they can make stuff up and bring it in. It doesn't even matter <laughs> That's at that right. point. Let me, let me also say one thing, and I, this is how important I think 404B is. I have said always in civil litigation, if you just know the hearsay rule and all of its various exceptions and you understand what they are and how to use them, that I felt like you would be head and shoulders above almost every other litigator uh, that you would run into. I think in the criminal context in particular, um, if you know 404B and you understand that and 403, throwing, throwing that in there as well as a part of 404B, if you know that and understand that, then as a judge, as a prosecutor, and as a defense attorney, uh, you're probably head and shoulders above your, your, your peers because that's the rule that's going to come up. That and the hearsay rule the most often of any of the evidence rules that we use. Well, and to your point, you know, getting a hearsay objection wrong, you're not going to get rules. That That's right. not a new trial. You that's get right. 404B wrong, that case is coming back. Um, right. It is pretty hard to argue that the for wrongful, erroneous admission of 404B evidence would be harmless. Sometimes exactly. the evidence is so overwhelming, in which case you didn't need it and probably shouldn't have let it in. But um, this is one you don't want to mess up because you're going to try the case again. You know, yeah, I, right. I, tr I try really hard to, to test some things about what I would tell my mom and would she understand it. And so I told my mom, I said, Mom, I'm writing this thing on 404B. And she goes, well, what does that mean? I said, you really want to know? She said, yeah, I really want to know. I said, OK. Imagine a guy walks into a hardware store and goes and um, is apprehended as he's leaving the store. He has a pocket full of screws. He has his hands full of other stuff that he was going to put on the counter, but he walks out with a pocket full of screws and he says, Oh, I forgot to pay for the screws. I had all this stuff in my hand. She goes, well, that could happen. I said, what if I told you he has been convicted for it seven prior times? She goes, Oh, he's guilty. She knew nothing else about the quote unquote case. I said, that's why 404B is so important. Is a pocket because full of screws, a pocket full of screws. Um, <laughs> Is that a is that a band from the eighties? A pocket full of screws? I think it is. They had that weird those weird hairdos. Yeah, big uh, wave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think yeah. it was a spinoff of Flock of Seagulls. Is that a pocket full of screws? <laughs> That's it. And men without hats. Yeah, there you go. All right, we just all dated ourselves. <laughs> Welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Um, Judge McBurney, you have no idea, and and, uh, and and I know you don't take this well, and that's okay. You are a, a number one, a joy to talk to, and number two, a, a real treasure for the Superior Court bench because you are not only um, incredibly book smart, but you have the ability to communicate in a way that average people seem to understand. So we really appreciate your time. I know our listeners do. Folks, as always, welcome to join us and tell us your ideas for some other great topics. We can get Judge McBurney or anybody else on. You contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Tane, tell them what the website is. Goodjudgepod.com. Folks, I'm Wade Padgett. I'm Tane Kell. Thank you so much for joining us. And stay classy, San Diego. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, who is the executive director of ICJE. 
Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically to Mr. Jim Henneberger. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, for editing out as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead NJO, that's New Judge Orientation, for new Superior Court Judges and for their support of this project. The opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of CSCJ, ICJE, the UGA College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. These are barely the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tang Kell, so we definitely aren't speaking for anyone else. You can contact us on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Or send us an email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this episode. Anything else you feel like we need to say? Remember, everybody, CDC guidelines require you to wash your hands 20 seconds after podcasting. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.